Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever it was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. And he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson once wrote, If Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, I will not be slow to embrace them. So we're now at last in the home stretch in our series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel and walking through Romans has been quite a journey. In fact, we began this series September 25th, 2021 or 28 months ago. And this message today is the 74th sermon in this series. Now, I did say that we would finish this up, you know, a lot shorter than John Piper, who took six years to get through it, but uh, maybe two and a half years would be sufficient for that. But the reason why we've taken so much time and spent so so many Sundays working our way through this letter section by section is because the book of Romans is the clearest exposition and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. In this letter, Paul systematically and deliberately answers two important questions for us. Number one, what is the gospel? And the second question is, how is the gospel supposed to impact our lives? And in light of that, this letter to the Romans can be divided into two sections that answer these two questions. The first section, which is Romans chapters 1 through 11, is largely theological. This is the part where Paul explains in great detail how, you know, the things that we need to know about the gospel. Theologically, what do we need to know about faith in Christ? And in this section, Paul explains what the gospel is, the bad news of 
all of man's condition and the good news of what God has done for us through Christ Jesus to redeem us. He then explains the blessing the gospel gives to those who believe it, how the gospel works, and how he, and then he convinces us of the certainty of the hope that we have because of our faith in Christ. But then he doesn't stop there. He, he explains why our hope is so certain. And what we come away with is salvation is 100% the work of God and not man. And what we walk away with after this is, is these essential truths. That first, the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. All of mankind is under the same curse, that we are all sinners with no hope to save ourselves. And the only way to redemption is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those that, who put their trust in Christ are guaranteed of their hope. That is what the gospel is. Now, with that, now that we understand these truths, Paul then moves to the second part of Romans, chapters 12 through 16. And in this section, Paul explains to us how the gospel is supposed to impact our lives. Or in other words, in light of the gospel truth, how are we to live as those who have been saved? This is the practical part of Paul's letter. And this is where we learn to apply these truths to, to our lives and those around us. And as we, and we learn to apply them to our relationship with God, now that we've been reconciled to Him, and we learn to apply them in our relationship with other people since we now have been, by the blood of Christ, reconciled to our fellow man. And with respect to our relationship with God, Paul tells us that we are to live our lives in light of God's mercy and as a living sacrifice, that we are to live every part of our lives for Him and for His glory. As our catechism says, that the chief end of man is to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not allowing ourselves to be shaped by the world around us, though, we are to continually be transformed, as Paul says, by the, by the renewal of our minds, seeking to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And the manifestation or the fruit of that is love. Our love for Him and our love for our fellow man. In other words, our love for God ought to drive how we live out the gospel towards other people. And Paul, in this very practical section, has been explaining what that looks like to love everyone else around us. And, and what that looks like is living by faith in Christ as a witness of God's goodness before the world. We do that by being a good neighbor to everyone around us and being good citizens of the community and the nation we live in. And again, the defining characteristic of how we live before that world is to love other people. Now, this, in my experience, is where a lot of people stop in their understanding of how to apply this to their lives. They, they will say that the way that you, you live out the gospel is to love God and love other people, which is certainly true. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're even to love our enemies. But the problem is, is and, and the problem has been for quite some time, is that many people fail to see in this letter the mechanism that God has given us to grow in our ability to apply this to our lives. And do you know what that mechanism is? It is the family of God. 
It is the body of Christ. It is the church, both universally and locally. That's the mechanism that God has given us to learn about the gospel and how to live in light of the gospel. And that's why the major focus of Paul's letter from chapter 12 all the way to the end is really aimed at one group of people, our church family. And and if we miss that, if we miss this, we miss one of the most important parts of what it means to follow Jesus. Regardless of how good our theology is, regardless of how inspirational, you know, Bible quotes online make me feel, regardless of how the worship music moves our hearts, regardless of how many good works we do, including feeding people and ministering to felt needs. If we miss this part of Romans, we're missing out on what it really means to live in light of the gospel. The truth is Paul is deliberately making a point that, that the most important place to live in light of the gospel and his mercy and, his, and the truth of his love is within the family of God. And that is why he spent so much time talking about how we are to do that. Chapter 13, Paul explains that we who belong to the family of God ought to humbly submit to one another, loving each other with sacrificial love and serving each other, recognizing that we are in fact a family and even more a part of Christ, making us a part of one another. That is a truth that is so often just cast aside that, that we are not just individuals who come together you know, and have some common interests. We are, we, are, we are spiritually speaking a part of one another. And then in chapter 14, Paul then begins to, to talk about how the gospel, uh, talk about how the gospel and our witness and our love for one another ought to then draw us closer into unity in spite of the many differences that exist between us especially the differences in the things that are simply not essential to our faith. Paul tells us that we are not to argue over these things. We're certainly not to judge one another or despise each other over these things because we have the freedom in Christ individually and and we have that in so many areas. Uh, We are not to become divided over these things, but individually we are to let our consciences guide us and we are to then love each other enough to allow their, your consciences and their consciences to guide them because there is freedom in Christ. But by the same token, we need to be careful not to allow how we use our freedom to be a stumbling block to others around us. We're not to use our freedom in a way that causes our brothers and sisters to fall into sin. We have freedom, but we have a responsibility to not allow that freedom to cause other members to fall. And so Paul paints this picture of living in light of the gospel in a loving and unified body of believers called the church because the church being the pillar and the buttress of the truth, as he says in 1 Timothy, is the instrument that God has ordained to bring the hope of Christ to the rest of the world. The way in which God has ordained to fulfill his promises is not through us individually, but through a unified church corporately. And that is why Paul wrote this letter. He wrote this letter for several reasons. First of of which was to clearly explain what the gospel is so that there's no mistake and we're all on the same page. But he also wrote the letter to unify the church, which was made up of people who come from very diverse backgrounds and deep, deep 
personal and cultural differences. But what's, what's the problem? The problem is, is us, is Christians throughout history. You see, two of the greatest problems that, that the church has always faced is false teaching followed by disunity in the church. The infighting that happens within a church. Now, when I say infighting, most people think of the differences amongst Christian denominations, right? They will say that, that, yeah, you know, we all need to be unified, right? And that's what the greatest challenge is. The greatest challenge is the infighting and the lack of, 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 of respect that denominations have for each other. But the greatest challenge actually is the infighting and lack of grace within the local church. The truth is it's easy for us to see the differences between congregations and denominations and say that out there is the problem. The reason why the church is so bad is because there's so many denominations. That's why I belong to a non-denominational church. By the way, non-denominational churches are still denominations because it's not about the name. It's about what you believe. It's about the doctrines that you're aligned with. Most of the non-denominational churches are actually Baptist churches who just simply drop the name Baptist. Just look at what their statement of faith says. Many people think that the difference between individual churches and denominations is the issue. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible paints a very different picture for us. The problem is within the local church. The differences that cause division inside the local church. Again, it's easy to look out there and see them as the problem, but the real solution for us is to look in here and to look in the mirror and see the problem has always been us. The reason why there's so much division out there is because there's so much division in here. And that's what Paul addresses in his text. Overcoming the division by growing in unity in the family of God. In fact, look with me at, first, at verse 5. Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these two verses, Paul lays out for us the main idea of this entire text, and that simply is this, that we are to glorify God by living in harmony in the body of Christ. That's the main idea. We're to glorify God by living in harmony with, we are to glorify God by living in harmony as the body of Christ. I want you to read that again. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony, literally being of one mind, with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may live, that you, that you may with one voice, united, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main idea, that we as a church bring glory to God by being unified and living in harmony with each other. Again, the catechism says the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and endure Him forever. So how do we glorify God? By being united together and living with the same mind, the mind of Christ. That's the idea and the context behind this entire section. If you read this standalone, you will miss, miss this. 
That is the context. And, and, this, and in this section, Paul gives us direction on how we then work towards living in that unity. So look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 and 2, Paul writes this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In these two verses, one of the things that is easy for us to do is for us to think, well, Paul, what he's saying here is we need to be willing to just encourage and help our weaker brothers and sisters. I know that when I've read this many times in the past, that has been kind of my first blush, you know, interpretation of that. Which, by the way, is, has, which has an element of truth to it. But that sentiment actually appeals to our sentimental nature. Because guess what? I think almost all of us want to be helpful. We want to be encouraging. We want to be uplifting. We want to view ourselves not as the weak ones, but the strong ones. Because we feel naturally a sense of satisfaction by helping someone else who's weaker. Especially, by the way, and this goes for just about every you know, person in the world. We like to feel strong and we certainly like to show that off. Especially if you're a man. Honey, could you open this jar of pickles? Oh yeah, of course I can. Right? We love to show off our strength in the service of others. We love being strong. Honey, can you pick that up for me? It's too heavy for me. Oh yeah, let me get that. We all like to use our strength and our skill to help someone else who can't do the things that we can do. We get a sense of satisfaction out of that. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel useful. It makes us feel valuable. But I want you to understand, that is not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul has in mind here requires we pay careful attention to the words he's using and how he's using them. And with that, I believe it is important for clarity that we define some of these words that Paul uses in this text, starting with the words strong and weak. The terms strong and weak are words that Paul used in Romans 14 with respect to freedom in Christ. And rather than walking through that whole sermon again, just suffice it to say, it refers to Christians in various states of spiritual maturity. The strong being more mature and the weak less mature. The strong are the ones that recognize their freedom in Christ and are okay walking in that freedom, while the weak tend to struggle with those freedoms and even tend to judge those who walk in those freedoms. And in the way that Paul uses these words, really points to the fact that there is some very real tension between those who are strong and those who are weak. That's why Paul said in Romans 14, don't judge the strong for their freedom. And he says to the strong, don't judge the weak for their doubts and hesitation to embrace the freedom because that is what each of them has been doing, judging and despising each other. And so there's this built in into these relationships that Paul's helping us to see that there's a real conflict or real tension between these groups. Now, let's look at the word bear. The word simply means to carry, but it also can mean endure. And the word failings in the Greek means weakness or infirmity, doubt or even hesitation, which I think gives us a better sense. And this word failing actually 
is from the, the same root word that Paul uses for the weak. So failings and weak, the weakness of those who are weak, those are from the same root. And so there's this sense of, of weakness and illness and doubt. But really, what are these failings that Paul's talking about? I think the best way to render this word is actually to say shortcomings. There's one English translation that uses that term. Paul's talking about a person's shortcomings or their deficiencies. And so what Paul is saying here is that the strong or the more spiritually mature are to bear or to carry the shortcomings of those who are weak or less spiritually mature. That's what he's saying, is that we are to bear and to help carry the shortcomings, the deficiencies of those who are less spiritually mature. We're to endure those shortcomings or faults or deficiencies that arise out of spiritual maturity of those who are in the body of Christ. Now, that is a very different picture than just simply helping someone. Paul is saying that we need to actively work at enduring these faults of others, especially those who have a lot of growing to do. And the thing that we realize is spiritual maturity is really not a matter of physical age or even the number of years you've been a Christian. There are people who have been Christians for a short time by the grace of God have become very mature in their faith and some who've been walking with Christ for decades are still very immature Spiritually speaking, spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how long you attend church or how many Bible studies you've gone to or how many ministries you've served in. And some people may be mature in areas of their faith, but then immature in others. And what Paul is saying here is we are all, all of us, to bear and carry one another's immature shortcomings. And what Paul has in mind here are the shortcomings that are difficult for us to bear. That's why the word endurance is used so many times in this section. The things that he has in mind are really the things that annoy us, perhaps even frustrate us, things that we might find ridiculous, things that tend to try our patience, things that may even offend us or even hurt our feelings, things that spiritually immature people think about talk about and do. There are things that unless you are, there is a concerted effort to overcome them can lead to division in the church. Maybe a person with a, they have a particularly prickly personality. Maybe it's someone who's just really, really impatient. Maybe it's someone who's not figured out that it's not always about them. Maybe it's a person who has read a theology book or two and then watched a bunch of YouTube videos and think that they are the smartest expert in the Christian faith. And everybody who doesn't agree with him is wrong. Maybe it's someone who gets upset because someone is sitting in their spot in the church that they have staked out for themselves for the last 20 years. Maybe it's someone who's all, who always wants to, to change the church back to the way they remember when they were young back in the good old days. Maybe it's someone who hasn't learned to listen before they speak. The truth is there are lots of behaviors that we find to be shortcomings. And if we're honest, they just tend to get under our skin. And, the things that, and, and these things can lead us to be 
very standoffish and even prevent us from being, becoming close to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul says of these things that we are to bear and endure these shortcomings. And what Paul has in mind isn't simply polite toleration. The answer isn't to just simply be polite and tolerate. He's talk, talking about actively finding a way to bridge the gap. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And again, this is where vocabulary is so important because the word welcome here literally means to aggressively receive. Kind of let that word picture kind of settle in your mind there. It means to aggressively receive. It means literally to take hold of. That's the idea that Paul is conveying, is to enthusiastically embrace. It is reaching out and pulling someone close. Now, just so you don't get the wrong idea, this isn't about physical affection, okay? Some people don't like to be aggressively pulled close and hugged, all right? Right? This is not about physical affection. It's about a concerted effort to tear down the barriers and put aside our own annoyances in order to draw someone else close to you as family. That's the idea. And again, it's not about polite toleration. It's about actively welcoming someone into the family of God and into your own life. And Paul goes on to say that we are not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And the word please here means to satisfy or to serve. And so Paul is saying we're not to satisfy or serve ourselves. We're to satisfy and serve others. And so the picture that Paul has been painting is that we are to glorify God by pursuing unity through patiently enduring and bearing the shortcoming of others. And we are to, in spite of our irritations, actively seek to draw each other close as family members in the body of Christ. And we are to sacrifice our own comfort and satisfaction in order to serve others, especially the immature. And the purpose of that is to create a discipleship environment to help them to grow and to mature, all for the glory of God. This is the very definition of loving one another as Christ commanded us. And let's be honest. This is really easy if you really like the other members of your church family. It's easy to love those who are easy to love, right? But this is not limited to those few people in the church that you really click with. This is for all the members of your church family, even the ones who have the innate ability to say things, just the right thing to kind of get your dander up. Now, let's be clear about this. And I want, to be, I want, I want to, for us all to understand what this is not, okay? This is not about tolerating sin. So let's just get that right out on the table, okay? The shortcomings that Paul's speaking of is not a person's unrepentant sin. That is not the burden that you and I are called to bear. In fact, we have an obligation to call a person to repent of that sin. And if they refuse to be instructed by the Scriptures, we're to continue to call them until the point there is no return, then we are by the Scriptures called to remove them from fellowship out of the body of Christ. We are to still love them for sure because we love all sinners, but we don't embrace them as a 
as a family member if they refuse to repent of that sin. Secondly, this is not about tolerating false teaching. This is where we get squishy, especially out in the world a little bit, because people really struggle with the, the doctrines that are foundational to our faith. False teachers really are the root of division. I've heard people say doctrines divide. No, they don't. False doctrines divide. Truth unites. We have an obligation to reject false teaching and to correct those and to rebuke those who espouse false teaching. And if they don't repent, then remove them. And the third, it's not about tolerating any form of abuse. Be it physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual abuse. Being a complete jerk is not a shortcoming. It is a sinful behavior that must be repented of, and it should never be tolerated. And under no circumstances, anyone required to endure inappropriate advances or touching or unwanted affection from anyone. Even if it's a matter of a, a simple hug, we have an obligation to respect each other's boundaries. And so if you're someone who doesn't like people hugging on you, then it's quite all right for you to say, you know what, I'm not really a hugger. I'll shake your hand, right? And even if you're someone who's like, hey, I like to hug everybody, except there's one person that makes me uncomfortable, then it's quite all right for you to say, I'm not about that. The point I'm trying to make here is that we, as a church, despise all forms of abuse, whether it's subtle, whether it's overt. And I will personally never stand for that. In fact, let it be known that I would be your advocate and I support you and anyone who needs to set the, the boundaries that they are comfortable with with respect to, to those things. And, and what I'm trying to make clear here is bearing with each other's burdens and shortcomings. This is not about giving people free reign to walk all over us. It's not about giving people room to harm us or enduring with people's sinful lifestyle. What it's about is what Paul is talking about here, seeking unity and harmony within the church for the glory of God. We are seeking for people who are different from us and different backgrounds with different experiences and different opinions on non-essential things, right? And, and, and to embrace them and to foster the common hope that we have in Christ. It's about for us to take those differences that are superficial in light of eternity and set those aside and they be united on the common faith and the hope that we have in Christ. It's about getting our eyes off of ourselves and our personal preferences and tendencies and getting our eyes on Jesus and His mission to redeem the lost. It's about seeing each other as adopted family members, true brothers and sisters, in the family of God. It's about us getting our eyes off of our own glory and setting it on God's glory. And it's about finding a way to put aside these differences in light of the gospel, which are petty and meaningless, and growing in what we have, hit, what we have in common, which is grace, mercy, and faith in the one who died to reconcile us, not to just God, but to each other. And that's how we're to live in light of the, the gospel truth. Now, there's another word in this verse that we just need to confront and come face-to-face -face with. It's actually in verse 15. 
we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Notice the word obligation. This is translated from the Greek word philo. It means to owe or to be indebted or to be obliged. It refers to, to being morally obligated or legally required to meet an obligation or to pay off a debt that's legitimate. And what Paul is saying here is we who have been forgiven have a debt that we owe. We are obliged to bear with the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. By the, by the way, notice how he says it. It's an obligation. It's not a suggestion. This is a command. We owe a debt to the family of God to patiently endure with one another. And the church family, right, this right here is the area I believe that, that many of us can struggle with the most. We struggle to live this out. We struggle to endure each other's shortcomings. Do you know how I know that we struggle with this? It's because I've been here for 12 years. And I remember all the people who have come and gone and all those who once said, this is my church family. People who were faithful to worship here. People who have, were faithful to serve here. People who made a point to say, you know what, Pastor? I love this church family, and I'm so grateful to God for, for your preaching ministry. I've grown so much. But people who, for whatever reason, decided to leave the church. Now, th now understand, there are people who left this church because they have moved away and have gotten plugged into another church. And I expect that. That's part of life. Then I praise God for that, and I'm, I'm happy for them. And there are people who have changed churches who have said to me, Pastor, we love you and, and we, we love your preaching ministry, but we have decided to change congregation because this other church family is a better fit for our family with where we are in our life, whether it's theological or whether there's just simply ministries they offer that we don't offer here. And again, I praise the Lord for that and, and I'm happy for them. But then there are, the, there are people who have left the church because they simply walk away and never join another church family. And if you ask them what the issue is, they will give you a number of reasons. But, but really, when you, when you push past the surface and you find their rationale, what you see is that it's a smokescreen. Because the real bottom line issue is they just simply refuse to walk in this command to bear with one another's shortcomings. The worst part for me is the fact that there are people who have left the church because others in the church have pushed them away. Because some in the church refuse to walk in the command to bear each other's shortcomings. Either through criticism, or through apathy, or through just plain old meanness. I've seen this happen before. I've seen how we can push people out the door without them even getting settled in. There was a lady who brought her kids to church one time, and she'd been coming for quite a while, and she was interested in becoming more of a member of the church, but she didn't have really much theological depth, and she certainly didn't understand Baptist doctrine, and she asked, you know, so who do I talk about getting my kids baptized? And, and rather than just saying, hey, you know what, let me walk you through what believer's baptism and what the difference is, they just said, you know what, you might be better off going to Catholic church gone. Now, I talked to her later, and she was like, I'm not coming back, you know, and, and I still pray for, for her and her kids, but 
but she was not interested because she didn't feel like she belonged or she was loved. And, and, this, and I want you to hear me. This isn't unique to First Baptist Church, by the way. Every church experiences this. Every church battles this issue to the point that there is a term in our culture now that has arisen called church hurt. That is the buzzword that many people use today, church hurt. And there are millions of people who, who've walked away from the church and they will then say it's because of church hurt. And, and I want you to hear me. I'm not denying that church hurt exists because the fact is in many churches there have been you know, false teachings that have been allowed to fester. Sin has been allowed to grow. And certainly there have been people that have experienced abuse at the hands of those who claim to be Christians. Every one of those things are legitimate reasons to leave the church. But that is not, in my experience, been what most people call church hurt. What most people call church hurt simply is just failing to walk in this command to bear with one another's shortcomings, to bear with each other's weaknesses. Because let's face it, many of us at difficult times can be a bit thin-skinned. We... We, we, you know, we, we get our feelings hurt kind of easy. Some of us are really easy to get offended. Some of us can be downright offensive. Some of us have very, very strong, deep convictions on a lot of things, and we get really frustrated when people around us don't see things the way that we see them. Some people get upset because someone else in the church voted for a different candidate than they did. Other people become upset because no one called them when they were sick, even though they didn't let anybody know that they were sick. Some people get their feelings hurt because they happened to be the last person to find something out that everybody else seemed to know. Some people have prickly personalities and can be a challenge to be around. Some people wear their emotions on their sleeve, and that can be overwhelming itself. During COVID, we saw quite a bit of this. Some people were upset because we didn't force people to wear masks when they walked in the door. And other people were upset because we weren't taking a stand and we allowed people to wear masks when they walked in the door. Some people felt that, you know, we reopened too early and some others felt that we were weak because we, we closed for six weeks as we were trying to figure out what was going on in the world. And I can go on and on in all the ways, big and small, that we can get under each other's skin in our own shortcomings. And I will confess to you, I have many of my own shortcomings, and I am painfully aware of many of them. But Paul says it is our obligation to set aside our desire to serve our own personal feelings and to bear with and endure the limitations and the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to patiently endure for the glory of God, the members of our church family. This morning I walked into the fellowship hall and there was an encouraging message written on the whiteboard and, and it said these words, family life can be messy, but it should be grounded in love. And I don't know who wrote those words, and they didn't know that I was going to preach on this particular topic today. But these words, by God's grace, were words I think we all need to hear. Family life can be and will continue to be, this side of heaven, very messy. Because all of us 
though that we are new creations in Christ, still live in a fallen, broken world in bodies that are still buffeted by sin. And though we may be growing, we are still far from the perfection that we will experience when we finally are glorified. Family life is messy, and it can be frustrating. And we will continue to get our feelings hurt, and we will shake our heads at other people's immaturity and ignorance. And people will say things that upset us and maybe even offend us. And we are not going to see eye to eye on every issue. It's just not going to happen. But even though family life can be messy, our love for one another should be the salve that heals the wounds and covers over the multitude of personal slights and offenses. Our love ought to make us gracious and patient, and merciful with each other. And we ought to be thankful for the love of those who are patient with us. (laughs) The unity of our family is the ideal that ought to drive us to set aside easily bruised egos. And it should help us to overcome our thin skin. The glory of God that is revealed in this unity ought to strengthen our resolve to love one another, even when it's difficult. And again, this is not simply a recommendation. Paul says it's our obligation. It's what we owe. Why is this an obligation? Well, Paul grounds this in four important things that I'll wrap up with. The first one is that Christ himself is the example of how we're to live. Again, beginning at verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. For, or because, Christ did not please himself as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christians didn't come into the world, excuse me, Christ didn't come into the world to serve himself. The scriptures bear witness to that. He came to serve us. And understand, if there is anyone who has the right to give up on people, if there is a person who has the right to give up on the church, it was him. He patiently endured his disciples' foolishness. He patiently endured their ignorance and their self-centeredness and even their unfaithfulness. If you remember, they all left him in his time of need. Christ faced the doubts of his followers, even their own arrogance, And even if you remember, on the cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But even remember Peter. (laughs) Oh, Peter. Remember, he tried to rebuke Jesus. I imagine he spent the rest of his life going, what in the world was I thinking? The fact is, Christ endured more humiliation and contempt than anyone else in history, and he never gave up on his church family. In fact, he died for them. Christ is our example. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it's always been God's plan. Again, I think we miss this. I think that sometimes in our theological anemia in the church in America, we kind of like have this idea that God had a plan A and that failed and then Christ then turned and then welcomed other people into the family. That has never been the truth. It has always been for God to have one united family. It has always been God's plan to bring people together of different backgrounds and cultures and ideals and put them together into a unified family. Look at verse eight. For I tell you that Christ came that Christ became a servant 
to the circumcised that show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And then he, he, he goes right to the Old Testament and quotes several scriptures. And he says, As it is written, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all people extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even though even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul, in this letter to the church, he wrote this letter, if you realize, to a church family that was made up of two distinct groups of people who were radically different in many important ways. The Jews and the Gentiles. To say that there were differences culturally is really to, to understate that. There were differences in culture and in tradition, in diet, in the way that they, they saw family. They were different in how they viewed politics. They were different in so many levels that outside of the church, Jews and Gentiles just simply didn't even socialize. They looked down on one another. But Paul doesn't just say that you all need to get along. He goes to the Old Testament scriptures right, and reveals that this unity of the family of God has always been God's purpose. It is His will and plan to bring these very different groups of people and unite them into one family. Paul points them to God's plan, which is revealed in His Word, which then leads to the third thing. The Scriptures were given to us to build us up and encourage us for this end. Paul writes, Let those we who are strong have, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For or because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement the scriptures of the scriptures we might have hope. Now this text is often used to help us to understand that the scriptures are relevant for us today. That they were written not just for those that were there at the time, they were written for people at all time. It might have been written to those people, but it's been written for our edification. And that the scriptures speak to us and encourage us even today. And that is absolutely true, and that is a good application of this text. But that is not Paul's main point. Paul's main point is more specific than that. The scriptures were written for our instruction so that we would be encouraged to persevere and we would grow in our ability to endure and bear with the failings of our church family. That's the point of him saying that. I want you to notice the repetition of the word endurance here. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. There's the point. With one another in accord with Christ, that together we might with one voice glorify God and Father, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures were given to us so that we would be encouraged to labor toward the unity of our family and help us to grow in our ability to endure and bear with the failings and the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And finally then, Paul grounds this truth in God's glory. Therefore, welcome, aggressively grab hold of and draw near to one another as Christ has welcomed, aggressively grabbed hold of and drawn near you. For what? For the glory of God. That is how we bring glory to God. As we find a way through prayer, through meditation on the scriptures, that is how we find a way to put aside our petty differences and set aside our egos and set aside our need to feel important and energetically draw one another so that we can be unified in our voice as we glorify our King. That's what Paul is encouraging. That's what Paul says Christ followers do as an obligation. And what that means is we are to glorify God in our lives and truly follow Christ the way that we do that is first of all, you got to be part of the body of Christ. We must belong to a local body of believers. Being part of, of God, the family of God, is not a uni- just a universal thing. It's a local thing. In fact, when the Bible talks about the church, the vast majority of the time it talks about the local church. And the way in which that we are to glorify God as we were created to do so is to live as a part of a body of believers, living in a community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, it means what it means to glorify God is to recognize that He calls us to live in unity with one another despite our manifold differences. And third, it means to glorify God by willingly and accepting the obligation to bear and endure the shortcomings of our church family. And I want you to understand, I agree, I'm going to tell you right now, sometimes it's not easy. Because because sometimes this pastor up here can be very impatient and sometimes can get frustrated. Sometimes can get his feelings hurt too. It happens. But because this is God's will and plan for us, and because as we learn to live in harmony with one another, we as a church can legitimately shine the light of Christ in the world that is so divided. It's through our unity and our one voice proclaiming Christ that helps the world to see their hope isn't in politicians or in economists or in medications. Their hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what do we do with this? Well, obviously, if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel is what you need to do. If you're not in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. He has said that anyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. The truth is we are all sinners. All of us have have the same deficiency. We have no claim on any form of goodness of our own. And what's worse is all of us are unable to save ourselves, which means we are helpless and hopeless. But God, in His mercy and grace, sent Jesus to live the life that we were required to live but couldn't. And then He died to make atonement for our sins. And then rose Him up, proving that He is what He said that He is, and He can do what He promised to do. And right now, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who believe.
And the promise to us is simply this. If we will put our faith in Christ, our sins are completely washed away and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. And we can stand before God without fear and come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that the future is certain and secure and that our hope, our hope is unchangeable. All you need to do is come and put your faith and trust in Christ and Him alone. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, always I think the place to come back to and fall to is we need to rest in Him. Because I know that this is what Paul is calling us to do, but we just need to give ourselves a little room to be gracious even to ourselves because we're going to mess this up at times. We need to certainly strive for it, but understand we're not going to perfect this this side of heaven. And when we fall short, we can't look at ourselves and go, I'm failing God. What we need to realize is I need to trust Christ more. Lord, change my heart for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Change my heart for that particular person who knows what to say that gets me all worked up, right? Change my heart, Lord, so that I can see the needs of my church family. Change my heart so that I can do and live the way that you're calling me to live. And then finally, we need to go rescue the lost. They are hurting and dying in the world around us. I only get little snippets of the news because I can only take so much because there's so much pain and suffering and strife and agony. The, the, the incivility amongst even people who used to be friends is just overwhelming. Seeing how, how people can treat one another nowadays like animals is just more than I can, I can bear. And I know that the answer isn't more legislation or education as we always like to think it is. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of us who are believers are the ones who carry that message forward. You have a group of people in your life and your world that you can sow the seed into. And, and we labor trusting in the fact that we don't give the increase. Our job is to sow the seed and let God be God. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.